Hello, and welcome to episode four of Jacked Radio. Since it's been four weeks since we've begun lockdown in the coronavirus pandemic, I wanted to bring on someone to speak about their first-hand experience of what it's been like working in hospitals throughout this. So I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking to my good friend Julian this week. A lot of the news right now has been potentially quite anxiety-provoking for a lot of people, but for me especially, listening to the way that Julian talks about this has been actually very reassuring. He's very honest with what he says, he's very frank in the discussions that we have, and he's very pragmatic with how he sees and deals with things. So we spoke about what it's like in hospital right now, why we should follow the guidelines, how we can manage our own health and fitness to help both physically and mentally right now, and if there's anything extra that we can be doing to support the NHS. We also talked about some other good sources of information if you want to go out and look at a little bit more yourselves. One thing I would like to quickly preface this with is that we discuss the future of health and fitness here. One thing I mentioned which I want to clear up now so it doesn't come across as insensitive is that I think this period may well have shown already actually who potentially isn't in this game for the right reasons. However, there are lots of very, very good people out there whose businesses are going to be affected by this and my heart truly goes out to them. And hopefully we can all rebuild a better industry on the other side of this because I do think the people that care about this, regardless of what's happening to them right now, do care about what happens with health and fitness in the long run. However, I just wanted to make that clear before we get into this discussion. So into the topics we covered today, I asked Julian about his experience with work, how that might have changed during the coronavirus pandemic, also the things that he's doing to manage his own health right now, the things that he thinks people could be doing right now to do the same, and also potentially where we might see the world going in the long run with all of this. It was a really, really interesting discussion and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you do too. So just to begin with, could you tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself, Julian, and also a little bit about Stronger Medicine too? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, my name is Julian. I'm currently working as a foundation year two doctor in a hospital up in the Northeast. Um, I suppose I went into medicine quite late on and previous to going into medicine, I've always had a a pretty uh, deep interest in just kind of health quite generally and and fitness and all that sort of thing. So I always thought I would be going into medicine with a view to um, probably something like general practice because there I thought would be the biggest gains in terms of lifestyle change and impacting upon people in that regard. So uh, you mentioned stronger medicine. That's sort of a side project that I, that I have, which is it's not really got any overarching aim. It's just my own interest in the sort of intersection between medicine and what we can actually do for ourselves in terms of our own health. Because I think the thing that I've realised going into medicine is that a lot of the time, what you're seeing in hospital in GP practices are the results of things that have gone awry earlier on and you're seeing them very, very far downstream. 
And so there always feels to be a bit of a disconnect between, you know, how we're living our life now and then pathology illness accruing and then presenting as something like a chronic disease. So uh, stronger medicine is just my exploration of trying to go upstream a bit more instead of thinking, oh, right, what medication can I give someone? It's more what can me, you, other people do for ourselves uh, to prevent that initial presentation in the first place. So that's stronger medicine there. And uh, currently, I'm working in the emergency department. I have actually pivoted in terms of my career aspirations from general practice into emergency medicine, ironically enough, because I just really enjoy the work there. And <laughs> it's it's somewhat frustrating because you are seeing a lot of those people presenting you know if you you can't say that obviously you can't say that a lifestyle choice a results in outcome b but sometimes you do see things presenting in the emergency department that you think ah, if only something happened further back to prevent this like you know heart attacks um type 2 diabetes is very prevalent um strokes all of these things have a massive lifestyle component to them but nonetheless i really enjoy the work so that's why i'm staying in emergency medicine and just keeping stronger medicine as my own thing awesome so it's stronger medicine is almost like a crossover between those you know the two the two kind of big worlds that you've been been a part of for, for such a long time in in medicine on the one hand and also in health and fitness on the other yeah i guess so i've always I think medicine is, it's got a really long tradition and it, you, you go into it sort of, as one of my friends has said, Yousef from Propane Finish, you're sort of standing on the shoulders of, of other giants before you. And so things are done in a certain way. There's guidelines, there's a huge evidence base behind pretty much everything that's done. If it, there are scoring systems for things, there are many pathways that people get funneled down. And so you're not exactly a like an algorithmic machine just churning out treatment plans, but sometimes it can feel a little bit like that. So I feel stronger medicine and just getting that rid of that whole name, stronger medicine, and just opening it up to just exploring what we can do for ourselves. I feel like that's more uh, is scratching an itch for me, which is a bit more uh, of a creative desire to just uh, branch out a bit and just think about the, the wider scheme of things. Because I suppose if I zoom out a bit, if we're still on this topic, the way that I see health is there's two, there's two broad external age, well, two broad agents interacting. There's the external agent, which is the healthcare system. And where we are, obviously, in the UK, that's the NHS. And then the other agent is ourself. Obviously, I'm not bringing into play a lot of socioeconomic aspects as well, but I'm trying to simplify it just to the things we have the most immediate control over, which is ourselves, really. So I feel like inevitably, at some point, we're going to run into the healthcare system. And there's a bit of a delayed discount bias because oftentimes it happens from what we can see now as way down the line. Like when we're older um, or just out of the blue, something can happen. And at that point, now you're in the healthcare system. And once you're in the healthcare system, <clears throat> if you get admitted for something or you need to go and see your GP, we do push for shared decision-making and as much of the 
management plans being in involving patients as possible. But nonetheless, you are becoming more and more of a passive recipient of health um, care. And you are you're having interventions provided to you. Uh, and, and basically, it's, it's more of a passive role that you're taking on. So the other thing that comes along with that, the healthcare system, it is uh, the NHS has already been proven to be one of the best in the world, if not the best, by you know the Commonwealth Report and other things like this. But nonetheless, when you're working in a system like that, of course, there's so many layers involved. There's so many gaps that things fall through. Uh, there's there's rotor gaps. There's administration piled on top of administration. There's um, iatrogenics from the medicines themselves. Uh, it's a very very imperfect system. It's so far from perfect that uh, it's not worth going into more detail than that. So on the other hand, that's first that first thing the external agent healthcare system. The other one ourselves, our individual agency. We have a lot that we can do and. When you're looking at the basics like sleep and exercise and nutrition, the iatrogenic effects, i.e. the potential negative side effects that can come from those sorts of modalities are really, really small. Whereas if I start you on a hypertension drug or insulin or something like that, there's a whole host of potential side effects that can come along with that. Whereas if I say to you, Oh, can you just can you just go for like a thirty-minute walk each day, just to raise your basal metabolic rate? The the benefits you gain from that are are untold, but the the side effect profile is almost minimal. So, I just think trying to pull a handbrake turn from careering towards this passive state of receiving healthcare and just trying to reclaim as much agency for ourselves as possible is what I um, I'm interested in really. And you you see a lot of you know obviously you see a lot of people come through the doors in hospital do you think you know part of that shift for people seeing health as almost something that like the nhs will deal with when i need them to to having more agency over themselves do you think that's kind of uh, perhaps a mindset shift is is needed for a lot of people to start looking at the the stuff that we can do as the delayed gratification kind of like later on down the line with how we can take care of our own health um yeah i think so um there's a good quote which is the current majority approach to the treatment of preventable diseases is to rely on pharmaceutical therapy after the onset of the disease that that is that was from a research paper that was looking at exercise and other things um and yeah I, I don't know it's really difficult to generalize and <clears throat> i guess one of the reasons that i have been interested in it just completely by chance just fortuitously <clears throat> is because i was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when i was 14 and since that time i suppose i've sort of i've had to pay attention to things because there's an immediate risk that you can die very, very acutely from low blood sugars. And then further down the line, there's a longer term risk of accruing horrible complications from kidney disease, You've got a raised risk of having a heart attack, like three times the risk and things like this. So I've always had it in the back of my mind. And I guess, so I'm more biased towards thinking there's a lot I can do. There's a lot that we can do for ourselves versus just waiting for things to happen. Then bang, here's some medications. Um, and yeah, like I said before, I think the I think the fact a lot of these things happen further down the line. Like you know, if you're 20, 
in your 20s to 40s, not much tends to go wrong with your health. But it's 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 useful to view it as sort of a an investment, like um, like savings, like retirement savings almost. If you start using to your advantage all of the hormonal benefits that you have when you're younger, all of the capacity that you have to increase bone mineral density, lean muscle mass, uh, to increase to you know decrease the inflammatory profile of your body, just all these different things. It tends to carry forwards through your life. And you see, and I've seen, I'm sure you have as well with your own work, guys and girls or, or men and women who are in their later years doing stuff that just blows your mind because they've just habitually carried on. It's not been a big deal for them because they just got into the habit of it. But then if, if you went back to when they were 20 and they took a slightly deviated path without doing those habitual, you know, exercise habits and to paying attention to diet, just the small things. And then you compared their 80 year old self then to the current one now that you'd see the difference is massive, like a twin study. A twin might end up dying on the golf course, swinging a golf club from a heart attack, very fit and well up till then. But his brother or sister or brother, I guess it would be, um, <laughs> would potentially be dragged out uh, for weeks on end in an inpatient ward because um, they just haven't paid as much attention to how they've been looking after themselves. Um, so I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that these things tend to happen further down the line. Yeah, I think I think it's a really a really valuable insight for a, for a lot of people to see it as a as a almost like a savings fund for for later life. I think that's a really nice a really nice way of putting it. Um, so obviously, you know, right now the the current climate of healthcare is slightly shifted with with what's going on. Um, you said you you're working in emergency medicine right now. But has your role changed since the the coronavirus pandemic uh, sort of broke out over here? Yeah, it's well, I suppose looking wider a little bit before I answer specifically for me how it's been. I think what I have seen is that the NHS and just the healthcare system as a whole has shifted massively, um, obviously, um, but in ways that are really quite remarkable. I mean, the university local to the hospital that I work in, and I know this is for many universities up and down the country, the final year medical students were exempted from taking final year exams. They were just cancelled. And that in itself, I mean, I don't think that's ever happened, just cancelling the exams and then recruiting medical students a few weeks later into wards to help out and to get started doing you know, the job of uh, essentially an F1 doctor without prescribing at that point. So that, that was, that happened. And I remember when that happened, all of us were like, what the hell? <laughs> Cause going through that final year, everything in your whole life is just building up to those final exams. And the anxiety that goes along with that is just ginormous. And the other part was none of us as foundation doctors have rotated, which again has never happened we have been told. So I've done four months in emergency care already. And then me and my colleagues were told, actually, you're going to remain in emergency care and do another four months. And the same for everyone else in all the other wards around the country. Uh, and that was a kind of top-down decision. That again has never happened. So those two things just go some way to illustrate how much of a bizarre situation that we're in. And from a sort of practicing medicine perspective, as, as I said at the beginning, 
medicine has got just a massive amount of I mean, evidence-based medicine is always bandied about and there's certain issues with that. But nonetheless, it is like a core tenet of clinical practice. But now we're having to think on our feet and there's a lot of guidelines coming out. That you'll be referring to guidelines that came out two days ago and that is just a weird situation to be in. That, again, has never happened. And they're getting updated all the time. People are being very empirical. And now we're in this sort of strange um, time of having to be very reflexive, adaptive, looking at what works and trying to uh, tweak and share practice um, uh, across the country. And for example, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, they're having pretty much weekly um, online like Zoom meetings. And there'll be 170, 200, 250 people logged in, like consultants and people up and down, clinical leads up and down the country, sharing what has been going on over the week. And so things are changing that fast. Um, even the resuscitation guidelines have completely changed to reflect the PPE needs. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it is a weird thing because whenever you go into work, it's almost like going into a different, uh, environment every day because you go in and they say, Oh, you know what we were doing yesterday? Yeah. Forget that. We're doing something totally different today. Um, but I've got to be honest, I think, and this, I think this fact may be, uh, troublesome in some way but i do think the social distancing and all the measures that have been enacted have had a massively beneficial impact because we are currently really we're coping really really well we don't we're not completely full we're not to capacity we have surplus and we're ready for a surge to come but the the thing that we're always worried about is um people viewing that as oh see it wasn't a big deal see there wasn't a big surge but actually the reason it hasn't been at least up where i'm working in the northeast is because people have been people have really pulled together i think and have decided actually i'm not gonna go outside and you know gallivant around unnecessarily so it has had a really beneficial impact and we're really appreciative of that um and i can see that in the department but the the only other problem is that a lot of standard patients that we'd be getting in the very acute presentations they've dropped off um quite significantly and so either that's because people are not out and about getting themselves into trouble as much like falling down and breaking their hips and things or people are just sitting at home white knuckling heart attacks and strokes and things and that's our big concern that people are not presenting when they should be so yeah I saw you you posted a really good um a really good image just to pick up on the point of how social distancing is is doing its job that um you have the comparison of you know we do nothing and we just assume that it's going to go away by itself and you see this you know huge rise where we do see the flattening of the curve and what we don't want to do is exit that too soon you mm. know we need to stay in that and essentially not get complacent with we we don't want to take the view of oh the measures have worked it's all over like everybody go and just do what you want because yeah. that that kind of negates what we've been doing so far right yeah massively and I'm I'm certainly no epidemiologist and um, things that I'll say on this podcast will definitely have errors and people will uh, have different points of views and things but nonetheless yeah a lot of the 
policy making decisions for what the government have done and everyone has their own opinion about what the government have done some people are thinking it's too slow some people think it's not done enough or there's too much like when are we going to lift it yada 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 it's it's a very tricky thing to deal with and the ramifications are massive on everyone's lives and it's not it's it's not affecting everyone in a homogenous way there are some people really suffering from this particularly financially and domestic violence is a real concern as well these sorts of things but yeah i mean as i was saying one of the um the papers from imperial college that a lot of the policy making has been based on uh, is quite stark reading to be honest the they what they did was compare three different strategies one was the do nothing hope for the best cross your fingers strategy another was mitigation which is basically just slow it down and by slowing it down they mean isolate people who've got symptoms quarantine that household as well you know for the 14 days close schools universities and socially distance 70 plus year olds but that's it so that was mitigation the other strategy was suppression and by suppression they mean we want to go all out balls to the wall and get the r naught down to less than 1 and the r naught the r0 is basically a a um a measure of how many people one infected person would pass on the infection to so coronavirus this new novel coronavirus can infect uh, the r naught keeps changing but it's somewhere in the ballpark of 2 to 3 so if every one person 2 to 3 people will get infected which if you multiply that out is just horrendous it gathers pace really quickly so with the do nothing strategy uh, the prediction was you'd have about half a million deaths in the UK and um, HDUs would be overwhelmed by 30 times their capacity. Putting that in perspective, we had about 450,000 deaths in World War II. So it's a unbelievable. It just, you can't even imagine it really if we did nothing. But I don't know about the case in Sweden, but that's something that everyone's kind of watching because they, they seem to be a bit more uh, lax with things uh, at the moment. Um, so we've taken the suppression approach and it seems to be working pretty well. But as you say, uh, if we all just start going out again, it will recur, it will resurge. The problem being, and I only just saw a, um, a news article, it's just on the BBC, and I think the, the lay understanding of what's going on is just progressing so quickly. There's everyone who I speak to, patients and the public, really do have a really good awareness about what's happening now. Um, but I can't remember who it was, but somebody who's been advising the government, one of the uh, medical officers, officers or something, has said that yeah, we're pretty much going to be in a similar situation to now until we get a vaccine. And as I'm sure loads of people know, a vaccine is 18 months away, roughly, minimum. So second half of next year. And that is quite a weird thought to stomach, to think that we're going to be in this this hinterland, this kind of weird purgatory for the next 18 months. But I, I don't really know what to say about that because I think that is the reality. Um, and one, one concerning thing that has started to rise, perhaps in, in response to that, is uh, certain conspiracy theories and um, just concerning thoughts about the 
origin of the virus and and what the government are doing. And I've seen a, a page on Facebook that has more than enough followers uh, believing that the NHS is actually euthanizing people, like patients in hospitals and things. So that sort of thing. I, I, my, my greatest concern really is the social cohesion of this. How long can we keep this going before people really have enough and, and the social cohesion breaks down? I think that that will become an increasingly worrying aspect of this. Yeah, and I, I definitely don't envy the people in charge um, who are who are managing this because, like you say, it is it is a a complex situation to be in. Which I think, strangely for for myself at least, is um, I, I wouldn't say a comfort is the right word um, because uncertainty is uncomfortable, um, especially for anyone like me who likes to know what's happening and when. Um, but I think, you know, understanding it from the perspective of, you know, people like yourself who are working in the healthcare system where what, what we're all trying to do is come out of this in the, in the best way we can. And it is going to take some, some navigation on a, on a day to day, on a week to week basis. And Mm -hmm. I think coming to terms with the fact that, you know, unfortunately a lot of this is still a bit of an unknown, but there are people working bloody hard to figure out what the next move is. Yeah. And I think the fact it's unknown is, well, it's weird because it is unknown, but then again, we have had massive epidemics throughout human history. And I suppose we are all just kind of reeling from this because it's, I guess, I guess like in our lives, Jack, it's, it's not normal for us to have been so, like not yeah i mean comfortable we haven't had any and that's not the case for everybody obviously all over the world or the uk but we haven't had any huge wars to to like battle with as a country um we haven't had huge uh infections taking over the country we haven't really had any mass massive national crises uh so this is something that's really really quite um, novel for everyone to deal with and the virus itself is, I suppose I could go into a little bit about how that, how that looks on the ground um, working in the A&E, if that's something that's interesting to talk about. Um, so, the, I mean, yeah, the, the, the stats on the virus, the typical thing that people are saying are 80% have a mild presentation, you know, 15% need hospital and 5% will be critically unwell. So I guess the first thing to say is one in that means one in five people who get this will need to go to hospital, which is pretty significant. Um, of course, the statistics are skewed. Uh, they have a selection bias because you tend to only, and especially in this country at the moment, we're tending to only really test people who are coming into a hospital. We're not, we're not at the stage where we can do roadside tests like uh, South Korea and Germany and things on a wider scale. So it may be skewing the statistics there, but nonetheless, like a mild infection, you can still have a pneumonia with that. And anybody who's had a pneumonia knows that it's really not a pleasant experience. And the other thing is we've had people in the department, consultants and nurses, we've had quite a few people who've had COVID now. And some people are saying, you know, it's the worst thing I've ever had but they would still fall into the mild category. So it's just something to, I I suppose I'm just saying it to 
highlight that even though mild is the word that's used, by no means when you're there having this disease, is it mild? Now, there are some people who are more asymptomatic than others, but it's not something to set your chances on, really. Um, and, and then the other thing is, so the people who are coming in are really, really quite unwell. And in uh, having worked, I, I'm only, I've only been working in the emergency department for, you know, four, four months, four and a half months. Uh, but usually in one 12 hour shift, you might have one or two really memorably ill people like people that you see a lot of bread and butter and then you have maybe one or two who are like, these guys are really unwell and they sort of stick with you in your mind and you, you mull over them a lot after, after the shift and things. Um, now the people who are coming in with COVID, it tends to be the equivalent of those sorts of people in succession. You're just having one after another and everyone who's coming in to uh, via ambulance usually are really, really quite unwell. And it's quite alarming um, when you see them and that they're, they're really in a bad shape often. So it's, I suppose the reason I'm saying this is because I don't know how much of this thinking is out there that it's not a big deal or if I get the virus, whatever. But although it does affect older people and actually now we're seeing also more and more it affects people of a higher bmi they they tend to do really not so good um as particularly diabetes and cardiovascular disease etc but nonetheless although it affects those people more we're still getting people you know i've seen people like 31 years old late 20s who are needing oxygen they're needing high flow oxygen and they're going up to um the respiratory ward or needing critical care review, things like that. So it is, it is really quite significant if it goes wrong. And the thing about this virus is that it's new. Like we've never had this virus before. We've had coronaviruses floating around in the UK all the time. We've got four uh, really common ones that uh, just result in the common cold. But this one, along with Mars and uh, sorry, MERS and SARS, uh, are new. And so we don't have an immunity developed to this. So if you get it, you don't know how you're going to respond. And the things that can take you down are uh, ARDS. Um, you can go into a massive inflammatory response to cytokine storm, which is a really brilliant name for a heavy metal band. If anyone's <laughs> going to go for that, you can have kidney injury, you can have heart damage, you can, it can just affect your whole body. So uh, it is it is a significant virus. Um, and I think just bearing that in mind, because the danger is that we slip into complacency. Um, and I think we are, we are just going to be in the long haul with this, unfortunately. I think that's a, you know, although a, a stark point to make, uh, like you said, I think that's, it's important to, to speak about that as well, because, you know, we don't want to become complacent. And I think, you know, I'm certainly of the, the, the same opinion as you, um, that although, you know, we may fall into a, a category of of the population who might be less at risk. It's still not worth rolling the dice on it, and it's still not worth being complacent about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, you spend a lot of time in that world and staying up to date, and you know, dealing with this thing, um, you know, in in the flesh. Mm. Um, so, one thing that I, that I did want to go into is what what are you doing personally to to one, take care of 
your own health and to sort of like manage, you know, navigating this um, on a, you know, on a kind of psychological and, you know, even spiritual perspective, how are you kind of negotiating your way through that? Hmm. Um, I think I should caveat this answer by saying I consider myself to be in a really fortunate position. So, you know, I live with my wife and we have a garden and we don't have, we don't really have anyone to take care of. We don't have kids or anything. Um, I'm still in a job and I'm acutely aware of that. And I know that I've got friends up and down the country who have just had their work wiped out in a day. So I feel actually really fortunate to be honest. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I guess some things that some things that I've been thinking about in that regard, I think it's coming down to just the basics. And one of the problems about saying that is that it's it's not a very it's not a very good, uh, easy sell, just the basics. But one one thing that I've realised with the coronavirus is that, um, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues and yourself probably as well, it just shrinks your life right down to your immediate surroundings, and suddenly you don't really have all the potential distractions, activities, things that could pull you out of the house and out of your single environment, you don't have them anymore. And the fact that everyone's in this same situation has meant that, well, for number one, FOMO has just disappeared, which is only a good thing. But I also think that the concept of one's mortality, don't want to go down too dark a path, but I've, you know, it is, it has highlighted that. And I think for a lot of people that has come to the front. And so when you think about, because, because up until now, it's, it has been very easy to go from day to day with enough things to keep you going. And on a micro scale, I suppose things like checking your news feed and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and blah, 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 YouTube. I'm really bad for that those things can just absolutely, they can drag you through a day half asleep and, and just repeat that process every day so that you're never really faced with any serious questions about why you're here, what you're doing, or um, the fact that we are all, you know, finite beings. But now that there's suddenly this, this insane virus going around and relatively speaking, this virus is not even that bad. I've heard of, the avian, a certain strain of avian flu, which has something horrendous like an 80% mortality rate if it made the transition across to humans. So this is potentially a dress rehearsal for something that's going to be even worse and bigger. And a lot of epidemiologists that I've listened to have said that that is exactly what they believe this to be. So knowing that, don't want to, again, don't want to slip into complacency about thinking things will be absolutely fine. But yeah, with the basic things, um, it's a really tough question, man. Like, how are you? How are you getting through this, and what are you doing? Uh, I think just realizing that my family and my friends are the most important things at the moment, and just keep, keeping to do, remaining to practice the important, you know, the big stones consistently, and those particular things would be disconnecting from the internet and media 
for the majority of your day because you open up your laptop and you look at the news and say, oh, right, more people have died. Okay. And if you're doing that every day, it's it's not helpful, really. So just disconnecting from that and exercise. And I, I hate the word exercise because it's such a drab, gray, dull word. It's like got no feeling to it. But whatever that means to whoever, having some meaningful practice to yourself and I've seen people get into hand balancing. I've seen people start running again, walking, playing with their kids, doing whatever. It's really doing whatever. And one thing that we're having to do now is to be adaptive. And, you know, I've got a friend, one of my really good friends, Tom. He he was going to be competing in the British Nationals in powerlifting, a Wilkes of like 400 plus. And he suddenly is no longer a powerlifter. So that identity has disappeared overnight. And I've been speaking to him and saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to get any equipment or anything? He said, no, I'm just going to start running. <laughs> okay, go completely to the other side of the spectrum then. So, uh, and, and I think that's what we have to do. And I'm lucky because I do have a gym, but I know that if I didn't, I would, I would find something else to do because I've been in the situation before where... I had some weird heart thing going on and I had to stop all my training and basically stretch for like two years, but I just did it because uh, I had to. So I think doing whatever we can do with whatever we have, wherever we are is um, just, it's the only thing that we can do. And so for me, it's, yeah, the exercise is spending time with my wife, it's spending time. Um, actually, I've been doing a lot of studying of medicine just generally because I, I just think things I'm learning are immediately useful because I'm either at home sitting down doing nothing or I'm back in the hospital. So it's like this weird binary existence right now. Um, but you know, it's most good things in your life are mundane things just repeated consistently for a period of time. So there's nothing really sexy to this answer. It's just do, do the basics and just do them well and don't get caught up in all of the, frankly crap that's floating around online um, and we can talk about some some reliable resources if you want to keep on top of the covid situation um later i guess yeah i think that'd be a really good thing to do and i i do you know massively agree with this you know big shift that's been forced on us to you know we haven't had a choice but to change our lifestyles really and mm-hmm. i I'm very much in the same boat. I, I count myself lucky with the situation that I find myself in because I know a lot of, a lot of people, um, you know, friends very similar to yourself up and down the country who are experiencing this in a different way to me. Um, but it, it has made a lot of people, you know, slow down and look at what sort of things are, are really important to them. Hmm. And I suppose it's, it's changed a lot of the noise that's out there as well. Yeah. But I do think, you know, on, on that note, there was a couple of questions that I was going to ask you, but you've answered them really nicely already. I think the, the big rocks and taking care of those is a really important thing to take away that certainly for me. And I think for a lot of people that's, it's made me realize what those are and why they matter so much, Mm. you know, staying physically fit and doing the things that also mentally make you feel good as well. Um, So in terms of, good places, you know, reliable sources of information right now. 
I think that's a really useful thing to to go into. So what what sort of places would you recommend if people want to find yeah. out and do it yeah. in a productive way? Yeah, I'll get into that in a second. But going back to your point, actually, about um, kind of re-examining and just thinking and reflecting on stuff, um, I think I think now is a really good time to do that uh, because of the the fact that we just don't have anything going on. And I'll be honest, I, I think I've benefited massively from this because um, the 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 pull of things like Instagram and the internet in general. And building up a profile and, you know, putting content out there and blah, 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 all these different things. For me, I think I've been able to really take a step back and think, why why am I actually interested in even doing these things? Um, And that has led to the bigger question of what am I genuinely wanting to do with my time? And I think I've started to identify that maybe more behaviors than I had initially been led to believe were based on like ego in some way. You kind of, I, I don't think I appreciate how much you want the, um, you want the approval of your peers and other people and, and you want to be part of whatever group or, or whatever's going on. And, and now that this has happened and now everyone's kind of in their own atomic uh, environments, you're suddenly st- standing there thinking, actually, what, what, what am I interested in, and why am I interested in this? And that's been quite useful for me. And then another sort of morbid thought experiment that I've had recently is, um, if I was about to be ventilated, how would I reflect on what I've been doing through my life? And that's been quite a good thought experiment for me to just kind of get rid of some of the chaff that maybe I've been allowing to seep into my life. And a lot of the time that tends to be based around phone use, screen time. And I'm sure a lot of pe- a lot of our screen time has just shot up since being in, being in our homes. Mine certainly has. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, I can't remember who said this, it might've been on the Modern Wisdom podcast perhaps, but thinking ahead to your future self, looking back, how will you want to look back on your current self like how do you want to reflect back on what you've been doing now will you in the future think oh god i wish i didn't do that oh, i wish i did more of this and i think the situation we're in now is a perfect sort of time to to think about those things for me anyway those are the things that i've been doing and i know everyone's in different states of you know their their contexts um but yeah in terms of resources let me just, I just curated a wee list here actually to, to kind of rattle off because I was thinking what would be good. Uh, well, anyway, the first one is, do you know Peter Atia? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So he's a previous trauma surgeon who went into longevity and um, kind of lifestyle aspects of uh, how to optimize your lifestyle and these sorts of things. Anyway, he's got a really good podcast, The Drive. I'd really recommend you check out the drive. He's had uh, infectious diseases um, leaders on that, talking about a lot of things that you don't actually hear about often in the media um, and things of that nature. What else? The Lancet. If you go and look at the Lancet type in COVID, you will get firsthand resources of papers that you can read. They're very readable. Um, Sam Harris, Making Sense, his podcast. Again, he's had some good people on there. 
if you want to get into a just a, like straight talking clinical overview of COVID, go to up to date. Up to date is the curated, um, well, in the name, most up to date resource that clinicians use mainly in America, but they've got a free, they've opened up a free part for COVID. So that's pretty good. Um, and then there's a cool YouTube channel called Ninja Nerd Science, which uh, has got a pretty, pretty good video on COVID that I'd recommend. Um, so those those are some pretty good ones to check out. But certainly Peter Atiyah and Sam Harris, they're, they're easy listening and they, they, they stay grounded and don't have any scare tactics going on. I think that's a, you know, a really important thing from, from a lot of people I've spoken to is the definitely the consumption of information coming at you can, can really impact, I guess, how you feel about the situation as well. Um, and making sure that you do, you do take on board information that isn't, um, you know, very, uh, I suppose like views driven and it's rather a, hmm. like you said, a, a much more grounded, uh, grounded approach. So I think that's, that's a really useful set of resources for, uh, for people to have. Well, what do you predict? I mean, final question back at you. What do you predict is going to be happening with the fitness industry when all this is said and done? Like, do you think that this is going to change things in any way? I, how, how people operate and consumer habits and things, or I, I think it will. Um, Again, I think, you know, much like a few of the questions I've asked you, that's quite a big, difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, How's the industry going to change? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I do think it's going to change. And I think it will, I think it, without without sounding horrible here, I think it will, mm. it will show who really wants to do this job for, for the good of people. Um, you know, I would class my colleagues and a lot of the friends that I have in fitness, uh, in fact, all of the friends that I have in fitness in that category of people that, you know, we're in this to, you, you know, it is a job, so it helps us. That is a big driver for why we do what we do. But also we have a, we still have a unique opportunity to help people with the skills that we have. And I think a big part of this for me has just been people still have the same problems that they did before. And I need to get creative with, how I figure out how I can solve them for people. And I, I do think that the, the, the things that people want don't change. It's just the way that it's delivered, uh, perhaps will. Mm. And I, I do, you know, I, I am very excited about a return to face-to-face -face coaching because that's part of the reason I love my job so much, but also, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of that. There is something, uh, bigger than us afoot right now. And, we need to first off, you know, respect the seriousness of the situation, but also try and do our best to still deliver a service that helps people and makes their lives better in some way. So yeah. I, I think it, it might make people reevaluate the uh, usefulness of online training. I think that's been a big thing for a lot of people. I've, I've certainly had a bit of an uptake recently, um, from people who have previously not considered working with me because of location. But I think now placed in this situation, um, it forced me to change what, what I was doing to help people in terms of reaching, uh, uh reaching further. Yeah. So I think that's been a real positive. Um, that's great. And I, I do think, 
you know, in the initial, I think a, a lot of people may have uh, responded differently to it. A lot, a lot of, we saw a lot of people kind of just adapt right away and go, you know what, it doesn't change what I'm doing. It just changes how I'm going to get there. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of people needed some time to kind of process what was going on and slowly more and more people are coming around to things like, um, you know, personal training over Zoom or, um, you know, trying to figure out how they can stay active but without a gym. And I think one of the biggest things for me is I do think it will perhaps a lot of people who are working in the fitness industry rather than involved in it. But I, I, I certainly know people who are, you know, a, a part of the industry as a, I guess, as a user of the industry uh, rather than a provider will be challenged with that identity being taken away from them. And I, I do know a lot of people who struggled with that right away. You know, people who were doing bodybuilding shows and powerlifting competitions. And I think it, it, it did result in a bit of a step back and kind of thinking, well, what, what is really important to me here and, you know, why am I doing this? So I think it'll, it'll change a lot of things really well in the long run. Um, I've noticed that there's a lot less snake oil being shilled, um, but because mm. people are picking up on it quicker, I think, um, not that that's not happened. And it was one of the things that I noticed first that within the first few weeks, people were trying to, you know, sell products to help with COVID and it's, it's, you can put anything that's not COVID in there. And that kind of small group within the industry will still try and sell you their products. Yeah, sure. I think that hopefully that's a good thing to come out of this, that I think a lot more of that is being seen for what it really is. Yeah. I think when you're in this sort of situation, suddenly competence is such an important thing. How, How it's just, you can't deny it you can't deny when somebody's competent in something, when they can achieve something that's meaningful for a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think for you guys, for the fitness industry, uh, I'd, this, this COVID situation highlights to me the like really clearly where there's a, a, a real role and an intersection here happening between healthcare and the fitness industry for want of a better term. I hate that separation, but nonetheless, um, you know, if you come into hospital and you've got COVID, what we can provide you is oxygen and we can help you breathe. And that's pretty much it. So we don't have any cures. We don't have any fancy drugs. Some things are being trialed and there are massive trials going on at the moment, but the, you know, for all of the investment and all the fancy stuff going on within the healthcare space, and all of the billions that go into this entire field, what we can do is give you oxygen and help you breathe. But if you if you do a lot for yourself, and we don't know the limits of an individual's ability to, to accomplish things physically and mentally or whatever, we don't know where the limits of that are. And I, I really think everyone has like just so much potential within themselves to to absolutely maximize the the buffering capability to withstand things like COVID or other illnesses or stresses or stuff going wrong in their lives. And one of the ways of doing that is through a meaningful physical practice that you have and, and building up your, your body in some way. 
because if you get ill, that's a, that's a stressor that's going to deplete resources from your body. And one of the best outcomes, sorry, one of the best predictors for a good outcome is how physically fit you are in the same way that if you go into an operation to have a hip replacement, one of the first questions that the surgeon is going to want to ask you is how far can you walk? How quickly can you get up off your chair? Like, can you wash and dress yourself? If you can tick yes to all of these boxes and then some, oh, and by the way, I can deadlift twice my body weight. Suddenly your ability to withstand stresses and things that life throw at you are just massively catered for. And you, you, you have this like kind of physical suit of armor almost around you that you can, that you can use in these situations. So I think now more than ever, people, and I don't want to preach, I really don't want to get into that sort of thing, but smoking, I would just, if anyone's smoking, I would really just stop if you can. I'd minimize alcohol as well. That's that's potentially something that is uh, deleterious to, if you if you get COVID, I would really, whatever you can do, even however small. And the good thing about exercise and training is there's a dose-dependent response. And the biggest response that you get is in the first few um gains at the beginning it's not if you go absolutely all out and become an, a complete monster if you just start doing something you start to get a disproportionate amount of benefit so whatever people can do is going to have a massive effect uh, and the more you do the more benefit you get as well so there's a dose dependent response there um so i just think whatever anyone can do i'd really just encourage them to to do whatever they can to look after themselves and their loved ones as well Absolutely. And I, I really like the idea of, you know, these, these two worlds that, you know, we're in, although they might be seen as separate, that hopefully there will be, you know, more of that coming together in the long term out of this, which is, you know, is something that I, I think would be absolutely fantastic. Mm. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to wrap it up there because I've got to get onto another session in about five minutes. But um, the last thing I wanted to finish on was... Obviously, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the reality of the situation we're in and what people can do to, you know, look after themselves and look after their family. Is there anything that you know off the top of your head, you know, aside from staying at home and doing our bit to, to help the NHS? Is there anything that you know of that, that people could do if they wanted to do more to help the NHS? Oh, uh, I know that there's a lot of donations being made. I know there are people making visors. If anyone's in any space that can produce PPE, that sort of thing, that's always appreciated. Uh, the NHS voluntary scheme, just looking after, if everyone was involved in their local neighbourhood and just looked out for each other there, suddenly that would cover, um, you know, the whole of the UK. So genuinely staying at home, that is number one, the best thing. Mm -hmm. Don't touch your eyes, nose or mouth when you're out and about that's how you get the virus. Just keep washing your hands um, and just look after whoever needs the help. Those are genuinely the, the the best things that you can do. And it's having an effect and we're seeing the benefit of that in the healthcare system. And I thank everyone for, for doing their part there. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, look, man, thank you so much for, for giving up your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. That's a real honor. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on Jack. Cheers, mate. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. As I said at the start, a lot of information for me has been difficult to manage in terms of where I'm getting it from. But actually listening to the way that Julian's been packaging all of this has been very reassuring and 
made things seem a lot more straightforward for me. So I really, really hope you all got something out of that. And I'd just like to reiterate the message that we spoke about in terms of how we can help the NHS, and that is by doing our bit and staying at home. What I would really appreciate as well is if you've enjoyed this podcast, to like it, to share it, to give it a download, and please pass it on to your friends if you think they'll find it useful too.